It's timely. It's insightful. It's motivating. It's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. A true friend knows your weaknesses, but shows you your strengths, fills your fears, but fortifies your faith, sees your anxieties, but frees your spirit, recognizes your disabilities, but emphasizes your possibilities. William Arthur Ward. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Time with Fred podcast. This is a podcast that challenges paradigms and mindsets that holds us back. This podcast can be heard on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Amazon, Audible, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. So thanks again for tuning in. Our discussion today is one of overcoming the odds of life, providing inspiration, motivation, and hope for others who face desperate situations. My special guests on today's podcast recognized her learning difference at the age of 39 when teaching her second son to read. Through determination and grit, she lived to see the fruits of her labor. She shares with listeners the power of following instincts, mindset, and the value of living in the moment. She is the co-founder of Teaching Students with Dyslexia Writing and Reading Program and author of Reversed, a memoir, which is a must-read for parents and educators where she chronicles the journey of her son's dramatic failure in first grade and the twists and turns that promoted her passion and her son's dramatic academic turnaround. She joins us from upstate New York. Lois Letford, welcome to episode 50 of the Time with Fred podcast. Hello, Fred. I'm delighted to be talking to you. Same here. The pleasure is all mine, Lois. Lois, I, you have a fascinating, um, not only fascinating, but very powerful story about how you were able to turn one of life's most difficulties uh, or difficult moments around. And this happened sometime in 1994 when your son was in first grade. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened here, Lewis? I sent my son to school like you do, thinking, yeah, there's there are problems. He obviously has problems. He's slow with his speech. He's slow with his thinking. I didn't expect the dramatic failure that occurred. He'd been in kindergarten and he'd been in preschool and they said, he'll be fine in school. He'll be all right. He was worried. He wet his pants every day. He bit his fingernails and he stared into space. I spoke to his first grade teacher on day six of school And she just threw up her hands and said, oh, I don't know how I'm going to deal with him. You know, he's so far behind. I don't know how I can teach him. All he does is stare into space. When you have a a diagnostics of that at that level, it's disastrous and the chances of overcoming are really, really, really slim. It happened for a whole year. I didn't realise that in the playground he was totally isolated. No one spoke to me. No one called me up from the school and said, we've got to talk to you. This is not acceptable. This child is being ostracised everywhere. And what happened at the end, sorry, let me continue on with the story. The testing happens at the end of first grade and they show that he can read 10 words He's got no strength and he's got a low IQ. 
How does a parent deal with news like that? What was your initial reaction to the news from your son's teacher when he or she told you that, uh, or the test revealed that he could only read 10 words, displayed no strengths, um, and a low IQ? How, how does one react to, to news like that about their child? I had hoped she'd find some strengths. I have a wonderful husband. He's an academic and he says, Nicholas can look like that on any day. That's a lower bound. And I still remember him saying that. And having someone else who believed in the child, I think really helped me because I could have very easily have fallen into the trap of thinking mm-hmm. you know, he, he hasn't got much going for him. He, he is really, he's certainly not learning. All of those things compound together. Was it exactly that made you want to defy the teacher's recommendation, Lois, even when you knew uh, there was a challenge? Uh, why did you not just take what they told you at face value and accepted the fact that this was what your son would be? That was the end of first grade. Beginning of second grade, he comes home with 10 spelling words. They were cat, rat, hat, bat, sat, mat, and an odd one is, all of the rhyming words. And he said to me, Mummy, will you help me with my spelling words? And the little guy was terrified. And I said, yes, Nicholas, of course I'll help. Get out a piece of paper and we'll write them down. He got out a piece of paper and I said, the word is cat. My little boy sat there with his arm around his work, his pencil hovered above the paper, and he couldn't write cat. He couldn't do anything. And I just said, Nicholas, let's go outside and we'll write them in clay. And with that, you know, that little boy spent an hour and a half writing his spelling words in clay. He's six years old, six and a half years old. That's not within normal. And we did it for Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. It showed me he had a determination way beyond normal. That was the first thing that helped. The second was my husband's a professor and we had study leave in England in 1995. And I go prepared. I know he's not going to cope in school because he can't hear well and then you've got a different accent in another country and, and, and. So I took a series of books with me titled Success for All, Total Failure. So we're back to a blank slate. My mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not learning, working and make learning fun. And I needed that input to change things. And with that, I thought, what can he do? And from my experience with him earlier in the year, I could see he could rhyme words and he could see patterns. In fact, he was very good at rhyming words and seeing patterns. Pattern recognition was exceptional. So I started to write little poetry, little poems, and the poetry was transformative, transformative. He relaxed, we laughed, we found the rhyming words, we illustrated the poem and it changed our classroom. Now, was this Lloyd's when you were um, when you were homeschooling him? Yes, yes, I homeschooled him for six months. H- how did you explain the adjustment, Lois, from a 
from that traditional learning environment to, to homeschooling? It, it must have been a, a difficult um, explanation, right, to, to, to give your son while we're pulling you out of school and we're going to do this at home? No, not at all. In fact, I said, Nicholas, do you want to go to school when we're in England? And I just watched the blood drop. His face went from pink to white like a ghost. He was terrified of going to school. My problem was we arrived in England when at the start of the summer holidays. And so the eldest son didn't go to school for six weeks and Nicholas is at home with me. And he is not interested in learning while there's activity around the house. So our six months is down to four months. He was very happy to learn with me. And what's interesting is that he cooperated with me. That's awesome. Cooperation. And I think that was critical, particularly when we started to learn the, uh, the do the poetry. But it also shows his determination. He was absolutely desperate to be like everybody else, mm-hmm. learn like everybody else. And I think that's what's ignored in children who struggle. Sometimes they are desperate to just absorb things and learn. Yeah. One of the things you, you write about or speak about in, uh, in your interviews, Lois, was the fact that your son's learning changed your mindset. How so? <laughs> That's a brilliant question. The poetry was just fantastic. So here's me. I can't write, but I've started to write. So I write all these poems and poems and poems and double O comes up. As in, and I wrote a poem about cook, look and book. And it was simply about Captain Cook, the last of the great explorers, and he found, uh, had a notion there was a gap in the map in the great big ocean. And with that, we start to talk about world exploration and world mapping. And while we're doing that, we found a map of 1550 and I looked at it and I said, look, Nicholas, there's, there's a gap in the map. There's no Australia. So you've got the Australian context coming in there as well, which is really important. And he said to me, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, oh, that's easy, Nicholas. That was Christopher Columbus. And he said, and who came before Columbus? And I'm floored because I had never thought, you know, you grow up with history, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. I never even thought who came before Columbus or what happened or anything else. And with that, I went on an exploration with him. But what was interesting is if I read anything to Nicholas, I lost him. His hair would go down and he'd turn away. So I had to do the reading. I had to put it into poem format and then I could talk to him. And his questioning made me see this child does not have a low IQ. And that was critical. He learns letters and sounds in the decoding compartment, component rather, at a snail's pace. Really difficult to get it, but he was getting it. But his thinking just exploded. And that mindset was absolutely critical for me to see. And, you know, this is when you come to talk about race. Here's this kid who is white. His father's a professor. We're at the top of the academic tree. And still they can label him the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. If you didn't have our level of privilege, how quickly it is to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right, aren't you? Mm-hmm. 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 
Absolutely. That's my passion. passion. Why is mindset so powerful, Lois? That's a good question. Why is it so powerful? It shouldn't be. When it comes to teaching of reading, and, you know, we're teaching reading of children who are five and six and seven. We've written the kid off. We've said he can't do anything. He's six years old. He's got a life of hopefully to when he gets to 80. And at six, we've said, you're nothing. I think that's why at that age, it's critical that we can see the other possibilities. And if we don't, we end up doing letters and sounds, the things they can't do, and, and all we're going to do is this, and he's not going to go through that gate until he's been through this. And what I did was, hmm, maybe there's a hole under the gate. Maybe there's a hole in the fence that we can find our way around. Oh, maybe we can go over the top. Yeah. That was transformative. Yeah. And I think it helps to share, um, Lois, that there are about 15 to 20% of people who suffer from, from dyslexia, right? And I wonder how many of these children, really, um, or people are written off are pigeonholed by the so-called standardized way of teaching, right? And, and if parents aren't as intentional as you and your husband were to identify that Nicholas had something that had to be harnessed or tapped, I, I wonder how many of us are, are destroying our future generations in this process. And, and I think in one of your interviews also, you've mentioned that he had a good support team. He had you, he had his dad, he had a swim teacher who I think was called Bob, right? And he had that elementary school principal um, who saw something in Nick and decided to, to harness that. How, how do we grapple with that fact, right? Knowing that there are a whole lot of these things happening in the world today, but very few people are able to realize that this is something destructive that they need to save their kids or their children from. This is what happened to me. After I taught Nicholas to read, I went back to become a student of literacy. And I'm reading academic papers. The one paper that I have was called The Deficit Theory. In fact, it's called Beyond the Deficit Theory, written by Brian Campbell. And he said, when children fail to learn to read, the first thing we do say is, oh, look at their IQ, Mm -hmm. their home background. Look at this, look at that, look at the other. And what we fail to do is we fail to look at the teaching and where the teaching has failed the child. Children fail to learn to read because we give them inadequate demonstrations or because we give them demonstrations to which they cannot connect. And the example in my book is of I saw a cat and Nicholas cutting the cat in the half and the teacher only giving the abstract meaning of the word cat. That woman put a fire in my belly, still angry. And when you come to teaching children of colour, teaching minority children, why are they failing? Because we give them demonstrations to which they cannot connect. Hmm. Yes, 100%, I would say, maybe not 100, maybe 99% of the children who are failing in the classrooms are failing because of poor quality teaching. This is, this is deeply uh, tr- tr- troubling, Lois, and, and I wonder um, if this one-size-fits-all approach is not working. I mean, as a leader in the corporate workplace, I know enough to know that you can't manage your team, right, the same way you have people who have 
strengths will have, you know, different levels of strengths, right? And so you got to meet people where they are to be able to harness that true potential. I wonder why we're failing or we're failing to recognize that when it comes to education, because we're assuming that every kid is the same and we're, 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 we're treating everyone the same way. My husband's sitting here saying industrial education complex. Big business is involved. Big business has sold their programs to schools and districts. And when your child fails, we're going to put you in this program. Mm. That program is standardised. It ignores the child. It ignores the child's background, their knowledge, their experience. And all we're going to do is teach you to decode. We're not going to teach you to learn or teach the love of learning. We're not going to engage you in in expertise or in in experience. We're just going to, you're going to do this. And when we change the way we teach, we change the outcomes. I was working with a little African-American boy who was seven or eight, had failed second grade, home situation was disastrous. He's in a reading program and not progressing. And I listened to him read and I thought, no wonder why he's failing. I was horrified. Anyway, I brought a book of Richard Wright and the library card to him. Kids' book. Do you know it? No. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. But it gives the story of Richard Wright having to ask for a library card from a white man so that he could go to the library. And it, it's written in a far too high level for these third graders. So I rewrote it and just put it into simple terms. But then you're asking, can you go to the library? Yes, I can go to the library. Well, see, Richard Wright couldn't go to the library a long time ago, but now you can. And he connected with the character. And what I knew was the next time I saw that kid, he came back to me and he said, my mummy knew of Richard Wright. My granddaddy knew of Richard Wright. That lesson went from my classroom to his home and back again. He thought about it. It was important to him. And when we're teaching reading and all we're doing is letters and sounds, we're ignoring the add-on effect. Has the child connected with the reading and writing we've been doing? Have they left our classroom and said, thank God that's over? Or have they said, I want to know more about this? And the next time he came to write for me, we talked about Richard Wright and all that he had done. He said, he wrote, we're trying to find Richard Wright's granddaughter. Wow. There's so much more involved in teaching the re- teaching of reading and writing than just the letters and sounds. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more, um, Lois, on that. There's probably some apparent watching and or listening and saying, well, you know, all, all well and good. I totally agree with what you're saying, but they just don't have the resources, right? Or the kid or in schools where there's just not that many resources, staff just don't have the time, they're, um, they're stretched, right, with, with, and very limited with resources. And not every parent has the ability to, to pull their kids out and homeschool them and have the time because perhaps they have to go to work or maybe work an extra job or whatever to take care of the family. This presents very practical difficulties, right, for a lot of parents who may otherwise want to do the best for their kids, but then for obvious reasons, economic reasons, uh, can't do it. What happens then? Are they doomed? Mm. Pretty much, sadly. Wow. I, in my book, 
You know, the first half of the book, I talk about my story and Nicholas's story. And in 1999, my husband took a job in Lubbock, Texas. I became the district reading specialist there. And one of my first, in, first students was a 16-year-old uh, Hispanic boy. And I got him. I got a job at the school district. And I got him because he sat in a meeting, an ARD meeting, and said, I want to learn to read. So I started to teach him. And as, as I'm working with him, I'm working in another teacher's room. He said, I'm watching you. I want, to have an, I want you to take another student. And he was an African-American boy, 16. Between those two boys, they could read 10 words. And my African-American boy is a guy I'm still in touch with. His story, you know, he'd spent 10 years in school, going to school every single day. Why did he fail? And he said, my mother worked from 2 to 11. I had to look after my younger sister. Mm -hmm. The teachers didn't know what to do. And the consequences of that are lifelong. Wow. Wow. So it's a, it, take, it takes every bit of intentionality, right? It's not, I mean, as long as you want, the best, I mean, there's, there's got to be some great sacrifices here that has to be made. And that's not a place to judge, but I think it's, I think it's, it's been made very clear for us to be able to determine or to choose um, what, what we want to do here in this case, it sounds like, as parents. I think I, I admire classroom teachers. They do an incredible job. My beef is really with reading teachers. Reading teachers are in, teach in smaller groups. That's their job. They have to stand up, I think, and say, this is not working. I've tried this. I've done that. I'm using the program. It's not sticking. What else can we do? Can we do? Yeah. That's where it falls down. Whether they believe in the program or whether they just go through it, but they are the ones who have to stand up to principles and say, let me try or, or something else. Because in that same situation, I picked up a 12-year-old girl. She had been, you know, 12. She's sixth grade, isn't she? She had spent three years doing a reading program that started with long vowels in Lubbock, Texas, talking about coats, on goats, in moats, on boats. Now, if you know Lubbock, Texas, it looks like a floor. The only water are player lakes. There are no boats. There are no moats. There are no goats. What's happening here? Mm -hmm. And year after year after year, it was acceptable for that child to fail. Why? Because she's not very smart. And how quickly we shift to the mindset, she's not very smart, rather than, how am I going to teach this child? Mm -hmm. Reading teachers, I really do believe, have to stand up and say, let me try something else. As a, as a teacher, as an educator, Lois, what advice would you give to teachers, especially when it has to do with uh, labeling of kids? I'd imagine that it takes a lot of, my, my wife worked with, works with young kids, so I, I, know, I know the passion. And I guess it goes without saying that it is a calling. It's just not a job. It's a calling because there's, some level of empathy that has to be shown, high level of empathy, I might add, uh, patience, um, intentionality, right? What do you say to teachers who 
um, just a quick to label kids, right? As no, you're not good. Just like, um, you know, your son, Nicholas, um, you know, when the teacher told you what he told you, what she told, he or she told you about him. I think teachers have to read more. They have to read wider and they have to do some greater thinking. It's very easy to get sucked into the mindset that I'm doing everything that's okay. And I taught in a school uh, and I wasn't particularly liked because I said I can teach this child to read. Mm. And people, again, come with their own fixed mindset, I can do it, and when the kid can't, it's their fault, all that. And that's the mindset that we have to challenge. So the first thing to do is read wider, find the stories of children or adults who have failed and work out what happened to allow them to succeed. Why did they overcome it either later in life or earlier on? I mean, I do a YouTube series titled When Learning is Trauma, Mm -hmm. and I've spoken to any number of people who said school was torture. And adults, that shame comes back. Listen to it so we don't repeat the failures of the past. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you. And I think at this point it's important for our listeners to, to know that Nick went on to earn his PhD. The six-year-old who was told by his teacher that he had a low IQ, couldn't string 10 words together, went on, defied the odds, and earned his PhD. Lois, how did this experience uh, change Nick's life, if at all? Ah, phenomenal. You know, as you keep saying, Fred, when children fail, the chances of getting out are really, really slim. My learning hasn't stopped. Nicholas got his PhD from Oxford University in 2018. Wow. I'm visiting him. And I thought, now I can talk to him. Now I'll say, and I asked, Nicholas, what happened in first grade? My son, who's articulate and confident, cried. Not a word emerged from his mouth. Because of the painful memories, perhaps. Exactly. And me, mother... I'd ignored the pain that had happened in that first year. It's over. We don't have to talk about it. That's disastrous. That was one. And I thought, I can't change this. I don't know how to deal with it. But I said to him, Nicholas, well, tell me what happened when you and I learned together. And it was like a switch went in his brain. And he's smiling. He's laughing. And he said, you wrote poems for me. And he named the poems that I wrote for him. 20-something years ago, and then he said the mapping, the mapping taught me to love learning and I never want to stop learning. Wow. And then he started to giggle and he said, (laughs) he said, you wrote a poem about a witch's spell and I wrote the ingredients for it and now he's laughing and he said, I don't remember the ingredients, but it was just so funny. That's how it changed his life. Yeah. Because you made the experience a better, a better one for him. Yes. Yeah. And, and when children are scared and frightened, and this comes out on the YouTube videos when learning is trauma, the brain actually shuts down mm. and nothing goes in and nothing goes out. 
for me to turn that around, I needed to turn around the happiness within our classroom, make him relax. And what I've learned since is the work of Mary Helen, Dr. Mary Helen in Morden Yang, talks about emotions and learning. And she says emotions are not an add-on extra, but the emotions allow us to access memory. And so I created an environment for Nicholas where he was happy and he was laughing. And 20-something years later, what does he remember? He remembers that he was happy and he was laughing and it changed his life. This is powerful, Lois, and I wonder what would have happened if you hadn't stepped in as a, as a mother, as a parent, and had just left his fate uh, to, to, to the so-called experts. I, I wonder, but we're not going to think about that. But I, you-, <laughs> I, you know, I find that really difficult to go down. My husband doesn't bother him. It worries me. Yeah. It worries me enormously. And we are doing it today to any number of children yes. who don't have that level of privilege. We don't know. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And you took this a step further, uh, Lois. You didn't stop with your son, but went on to start a program teaching children with dyslexia. Why didn't you stop with, uh, with, with Nick? What, what prompted you to decide to pay it forward with other children? You just said it. You know, it, privilege should never, ever, ever be a reason a child learns to read. Mm. But that's the only reason Nicholas learned to read because I could have easily fallen into the trap of saying, well, you're right. But having that that switch, my child is not stupid. My child's got a brain. That's right. Critical in allowing him to see, allowing me to see what he could do. And see, what's fascinating to me about my story or Nicholas's story is that in 1999, our family moved from Brisbane, Australia to Lubbock, Texas. Brisbane, in Brisbane, he was in fifth grade. He's reading on a third grade reading level. And guess what? Everyone is happy because he has exceeded expectations. He's reading and writing. We didn't expect him to read and write. He said, isn't that fantastic? We can relax. He's reading 20 minutes a night. Isn't that wonderful? In Lubbock, Texas, I identified nine things that happened. One of the most important was that Nicholas came home on the first day of school and he said to me, Mum, I've got to read a book and take a test. At 7 o'clock that night, Nicholas goes to his bedroom and starts reading the Goosebumps book. At 9 o'clock at night, I'm knocking on his door saying, Nicholas, it's time to go to bed. Nicholas read for six, for two hours a night, six and seven nights a week to read one Goosebumps book. Wow. There's a quantity that children have to do, and you're seeing persistence. You're seeing a desire to read. You're seeing him work like the best kids in the class, and that was one of the reasons helping go from the bottom to the top. The second was listening to audiobooks. If you know where Lubbock is, it's miles from anywhere. Every time we got in the car, Nick, we've got a book on, and Nick, what are we listening to this time? What are we listening to? Wow, wow, total transformation there. Yeah, yeah. So there are two things... One is, is listening to audiobooks first up. And if a child can't do it on their own, do it with them. Listen with them. Talk about the story. Talk about the characters. Talk about what's happening. Because then you come back and then they still have to read every word and every sentence. Watch a movie, then read a book. All of those things help children go from the bottom to the top. Yeah. 
I couldn't agree with you more there, uh, Lois. And as we wrap this up, I know we could go on and on with this, but I want to be respectful of time here. What uh, remarks, um, closing remarks really, do you have for listeners um, who may find themselves in this situation? Maybe some may have been told by teachers, your kid is no good and they may have bought into that or you know, just don't know what they don't know. The first thing is to see that child who absolutely struggles as a future rocket scientist. And when you see children like that, it helps us shift, shift our mindset. What else do I have to do to teach this child? Mm. And then read my story. Understand that, you know, the amount of effort that went in to a child like Nicholas and the growth was not instant. He was never brilliant at anything until he got to middle school, late elementary anyway. Uh, and believe in the children that you're teaching. Believe that they are of value. I think that's the most important shift that we can have. And then always contact me, talk to me, ask what else you have to do, because my goal is always to teach the child to read. Lois Letchford, author of Reversed a Memoir. To learn about Lois's work, visit her website at www.loisletchford.com. It's L-O-I-S-L-E-T-C-H-F-O-R-D.com. Lois, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for sharing this powerful story. What resonates with me as a parent um, of two young kids is to see their potential, be intentional about it, and make learning fun. And to you, our listeners and uh, viewers, if you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our podcast page on iTunes. Leave us a positive review. That always helps. Thank you for listening. And until next time, stay well.